0: Next month, we'll present the European Union with an awkward anniversary. On July 1st, it will be 10 years since the last new member, Croatia, joined the bloc. And in that becalmed decade, of course, the EU has actually seen its membership reduced by one following the departure of the United Kingdom. This stasis has caused particular irritation among Croatia's neighbours in the Western Balkans. All of the following are EU candidates, some of many years' standing. North Macedonia, Montenegro, Serbia, Albania, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Kosovo would like to be one. The 16 months since Russia's full-scale assault on Ukraine have lent the matter greater urgency but also prompted proportional irritation, not least at suspicions that Ukraine and Moldova, both granted candidate status last year, are being ushered to the front of the queue, if only for their own protection. In this special episode, recorded at the GlobeSec conference in Bratislava, we'll examine the deadlock from both sides, speaking to Roberta Metzola, President of the European Parliament, and Elmedin Konjakovic, Foreign Minister of Bosnia Herzegovina. What, basically, is the holdup? And as Russia attempts to reassemble its empire, what are the dangers of leaving countries out in the cold? This is the Foreign Desk.
1: The union in the past five years came together like never before. We had a global pandemic without European unity, we would not have emerged. And we would not have been prepared because of that unity that we found during the pandemic to react so swiftly in terms of uncoupling ourselves from Russian gas and also changing completely the way we work, the speed with which we take decisions. So if we take that pragmatism with the sense of hope and aspiration, I think we can manage.
2: The way we are negotiating, we are explaining, we are understanding each other, it looks different than before. Of course, we don't expect, I don't know, like someone to adapt us and say, okay, tomorrow you are a member of European community, without doing anything, that's impossible. We know European community has his own rules, of course,
0: we know, we are aware of the situation. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. I'm joined, first of all, by Suzanne Lynch, Politico Europe's chief Brussels correspondent. Suzanne, first of all, is there any particular prevailing mood about EU enlargement in Brussels? Is there any self-consciousness about the fact that it is now a decade since a new member was ushered into the club?
3: Yes, I think there very much is. There has been a distinct shift in Brussels on the whole issue of enlargement. Over the last 18 months or so. And that is simply down to one factor, and that was the full scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. That has completely changed the conversation here. I and mean, you're right, Andrew, in that traditionally, over the last decade or so, there has been basically no appetite, very little appetite, to expand the EU further. So the EU is currently a club of 27 countries. And the last big wave of enlargement was back in 2004 when 10 countries joined and then we had some other countries joining after that. But since then, there has been a reluctance, particularly by some of the bigger countries, I'm thinking of France here, to expand the EU any further. I think some of it was to do with a disappointment that countries like Poland and Hungary, more recent additions to the club, have been flouting rule of law standards once they got into the European Union. And I think this kind of damaged the idea of enlargement for a lot of people on the western part of the continent. However, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed the calculation now. And I think there is now a realisation coming, including from Paris, that you can't just ignore countries that are on the periphery of the EU. And that the Russian influence in some of these Western Balkan countries, I'm thinking Serbia, for example, is something that should be a cause of concern. And there is an argument that because a lot of these countries in the Western Balkans in particular have been in the waiting room for so long, they've got tired, they've got impatient. And this could be fertile ground for other countries, for example, Russia.
0: Is there also concern among the established members of the EU club that expanding it, especially in the Western Balkans, would prompt more of the kind of populist backlash that we've seen animating populist political parties across Europe, and it could be argued prompting one member of the EU to leave?
3: Well, I mean, yeah, I think they're going to be very wary about the conditions on which countries enter the EU. And you, you hear that mantra all the time saying there's no easy passes and each country have certain milestones in EU it's called chapters, you open certain negotiation chapters you close those chapters and then you're ready for liftoff as it were and what we have at the moment is that there are a number of countries at different stages in that process for example at the moment there are a lot of tensions in north Kosovo you know between Kosovo and Serbia those kind of issues that haven't been resolved yet and it's hard to see a situation where both Serbia and Kosovo in different ways move forward on their EU accession paths when you've got those huge issues still happening there. In saying that, I think actually the biggest concern for a lot of countries would be financial, particularly with Ukraine. The issue with Ukraine is obviously the EU has been a pains to point out that it's with Ukraine, that it's supporting Ukraine, and that it sees Ukraine's future in Europe and towards the West. The issue, though, of course, is Ukraine is such a huge country and it is such a huge agricultural player. And that could have massive ramifications, for example, for the common agricultural policy, and also for cohesion funds, they're the funds that the EU gives to newer, poorer member states to bring them up to the average EU level. And because of the sheer size of Ukraine, that would be a huge undertaking, a huge bite into the EU budget. So I think as the reality or not of these countries joining becomes you know, more real, would those kind of factors begin weighing on minds?
0: We saw recently in Moldova the meeting of the European political community. Moldova is, of course, not an EU member yet, though it is an EU candidate, and it is, of course, also one of those countries right up on the eastern frontier of the putative European Union. Is an organisation like the European political community, this brainchild of President Emmanuel Macron of France, envisaged as a sort of halfway house, because I I get the sense that that what quite a few non-EU Eastern European countries are wary of, that they'll just be parked in this waiting room potentially forever.
3: Yes, I think it is a real concern by a lot of these countries that it's kind of eu light, that it's a kind of a substitute for full EU membership and that perhaps Brussels and President Macron oh, will keep them happy, if you like, by, you know, including these countries in a broader European community without actually giving them a serious chance actually joining the EU, which is what most of these countries really, really want. Now, in saying that, the other side of the argument is that uh, there seems to be pretty much goodwill at the same time behind Macron's idea. Yes, it's a bit nebulous. Yes, it's a bit fuzzy. But it does get countries sitting around the table talking about issues. It did allow Moldova, for example, even though it's a long way away from ever joining the EU. Here was Moldova, the president of Moldova, with more than 40 leaders, most of them from the EU in her country. Most of those leaders would never have been to Moldova before. So it gave Moldova this platform to put themselves in front of not just the global community, but the EU leaders who will also be making a decision about their entry at some point. So, you know, every little counts, if you like. But there is a concern. I think there is a an impatience generally by a lot of the countries, particularly in the Western Balkans, that they've been so long waiting in the wings now. And of course, perhaps a resentment that, you know, Ukraine and Moldova are now kind of being fast-tracked, not officially, but, you know, there's been a lot of goodwill towards them, whereas the Western Balkan countries have been languishing. And I must say, Andrew, I was talking to a diplomat recently who made the point, you know, does there have to be a war for Brussels to take us seriously? Somebody made that reference in relation to the current tensions in North Kosovo, saying, you know, now who the EU is getting interested because there's actually tensions here and maybe that will kind of focus mine. So there's a little bit of cynicism, I think, with some of the countries about Europe's priorities and whether it really is committed to letting these countries into the bloc.
0: Suzanne, thank you. That was Suzanne Lynch, Politico Europe's Chief Brussels Correspondent. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Moldova was granted EU candidate status in June 2022. This was an obvious enough response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Moldova is also effectively partially occupied by Russia in the form of the Russian proxy state of Transnistria. Earlier, I spoke to Moldova's Minister of Internal Affairs, Anna Ravanko, at Midori House.
4: Right now... The entire nation and all the authorities and all the Moldovans have only one large strategic objective that we all work on, and it is European integration. The challenge is to further develop and go on on that agenda with still an active war in our proximity, but it is uh, absolutely crucial that we keep up with uh, this objective. By this, we also contribute and uh, back up uh, Ukrainians in their fight against uh, the Russian aggression because it is the only way Ukrainians also defend the Republic of Moldova and entire European continent. Uh, We've managed uh, to put together a whole of a government approach into the European integration agenda by creation of uh, multiple working groups per all of the chapters. Activities are ongoing in terms of the transmission of the aquí communautaire into our uh, national uh, legal framework. Moldova is uh, already advancing on a number of top priorities uh, pointed out by the European Commission and that is the anti-corruption agenda, Mm. that is the uh, further judicial reform. We are quite uh, uh, dynamic on energy security uh, agenda, on the interconnection. On the other hand, we truly understand that it is not the time to relax. Mm. The uh, report that has been submitted and, uh, and uh, new information that will be further provided to, uh, to Brussels with only once again confirm that uh, we further stay committed. And it is important that all these efforts are made in order to make it possible to uh, open the negotiations as scheduled this, uh, this fall.
0: That was Moldova's Minister of Internal Affairs, Anna Ravenko. Our next guest is Roberta Metsola, a Maltese MEP currently serving as the President of the European Parliament. I sat down with President Metzola at the Globesec Bratislava Forum. I began by asking President Metzola about her recent meeting in Lviv with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, where she signalled hope for Ukraine's EU accession talks to start this year. And I asked if she has a time scale in mind were this to happen.
1: First of all, going back not only to Lviv, but even to the first few days after Russia invaded Ukraine, that for the European Parliament there was no question that Ukraine had to be a candidate country. We were sort the first to say it. It took a little bit of courage, but for us, once a country is not only fighting for what we all believe in, but is fighting for fundamental principles that we all defend, and that if it looks to Europe as its home, why wouldn't Europe fling its doors wide open? When we then met in Lviv, uh, this was also as a reflection of the fact that we are quite impressed with the speed at which Ukraine is proceeding through the addressing of the European Commission's recommendations for what should be done before the next step is taken, and that once those are fulfilled, then the negotiations can actually start the accession negotiations this year. This still continues to be our position. Of course, every country has its own path, but I will never underestimate, because I come from one of those countries, the transformational effect that uh, candidate status and accession negotiations can have on that country.
0: Do you have any idea in mind, any sort of, limits or otherwise on what kind of Ukraine might be admitted to the EU? Because obviously, if you were to ask Ukraine that, they would say Ukraine entire with its 1991 borders, including Crimea. But there are, of course, precedents for countries being partially in the EU, as Germany was and as Cyprus now is. Is that something the EU would be prepared to countenance?
1: Well, that's not something that the EU is prepared to discuss now, if I can tell you that. When you see that a country is under daily bomb attacks, with some of the harshest since the beginning of the invasion in Kiev the last two days, there is actually, you know, an increased sense of understanding that Ukraine can win when Russia leaves its territory. And that is precondition to, whenever we're asked, discussion on what peace means. Because you can always talk about peace, but peace without justice, peace without territorial integrity, peace without accountability is no peace at all. That is a very, I would say, strong position, not only of the European Parliament, but of the European institutions. And it's one that comes alongside not only an increase in the debate and the urgency of helping Ukraine, but also a reminder of the fact that Ukraine is not only fighting its own war. This is not a bilateral conflict, but it's fighting our war.
0: Is it not frustrating to you that there does seem to be a lot more enthusiasm for the EU outside the EU than in it? I mean, speaking only for myself, I see the EU flag flown far more frequently and far higher in countries in the former Yugoslavia, which are not members yet. And recently in in huge demonstrations, protests in Moldova and Georgia, we've seen the EU flag being flown almost as a battle standard. Does it ever bother you that you can't conjure that kind of excitement among the people who are already in the club?
1: (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. I think we'll start with the symbolism, right? Mm. So European flag represents a beacon of hope, and it's also recognisable as a club of countries where you are protected once you're in I agree with you that the hoops with which we make countries needing to go through or overcome to enter the European Union tend to be forgotten once you're in, and that we have seen quite a lot of backsliding in terms of media freedom, also in this country, Slovakia, where we're in today, which has made us realize that it is not only enough for you to enter, but then you have to stand by what you promised your people once you entered, because they want to feel protected. Perhaps a few years ago, I would have been also a little bit more worried about the Brexit phenomenon. I'm not anymore, Mm -hmm. Uh, because if you ask even those political allies of the Brexiteers at the time what they would think now about their own country, they will no longer tell you that they think their country will be better outside the European Union. So there is a sense of belonging and one where even as we now discuss what we mean by a security and defense policy, what we mean by our strategic autonomy, how we realize, perhaps even not only after 24th of February 2022, but when we saw what happened in Afghanistan, when the United States pulled out, that the European Union cannot, uh, let's say, wait for others to solve global geostrategic conflicts or geopolitical, let's say, Situations. And that's perhaps what those countries who look, especially in our neighborhood, at the European Union as a way for a better life. And it's not one that should be discounted. And it's also one that perhaps also resonated very strongly when the European Union did not take the decision to admit Romania and Bulgaria into and Schengen at the end of last year. It resonated with a message of. We'll ask you to do so many things for the European Union, but then once it comes for you to join that club, you need to wait a little bit longer. Western Balkans feel that frustration, and I would very much be on the side of, let's make sure that we do not lose yet another generation of young people who have fought campaigns and won and lost them on the backs of the European dream.
0: There's a question attached to that, I guess you could call it complacency among EU members, which pertains to the EU elections, which are due in 2024. And whether you were perturbed at all by turnout, your own country, Malta, I think, is fairly exemplary in this respect, and I think 72% or so turned up for the last... That was low for us. Which was low for Malta for the last EU elections. But is there anything that you can extrapolate from that to apply elsewhere? Because in a lot of countries, including very recent members, like, for example, the one we're sitting in, Slovakia, turnout was barely one in four.
1: Yeah, and it was even lower, the one in the election before that mm-hmm. in 2014. Well, this is obviously a concern, and it is one that I would like to take on board in terms of what kind of campaign we will run. There is a specific complication in such an election, that it is on the same weekend across 27 member states. In some member states, there is a predilection to go to vote, no matter what election it is. In some other countries, including in this one, it will come on the back of three very difficult elections, the general, the presidential, and I think also the local and regional. So let us I need to also keep that in mind. But at the end of the day... If we manage to push the narrative or explain the narrative with all the challenges that we will have between now and one year from now, is that the union in the past five years came together like never before. We had a global pandemic without European unity, we would not have emerged either economically or from a health perspective, in the way we have emerged today. We would not have allocated an unprecedented amount of economic funds in order for our economies to recover. And we would not have been prepared, because of that unity that we found during the pandemic, to react so swiftly in terms of uncoupling ourselves from Russian gas and also changing completely the way we work, the way we take decisions, the speed with which we take decisions. If you couple that with countering an inevitable populist narrative that's on the rise. I say inevitable because this will be my fifth European Parliament elections and it happens specifically for European elections. If we can, and this will be one of our biggest challenges, adopt legislation on migration... Another area where citizens across all countries, including in this one, said that migration was their top concern and wanted Europe to solve it. And thirdly, that we will still have shown that in a war we managed to come together. That means that myself, my colleagues will have to, you know, counter the narrative I mentioned before, fight for more ambitious legislation, but also explain it, sometimes realizing that if we go too fast, we will lose the citizens from believing in Europe. So if we take that pragmatism with the sense of hope and aspiration, I think we can manage to, let's say, encourage as many people to vote. We also have a new element next year that in four countries, 16-year-olds will vote for the first time. And that means that we will need to target that age segment specifically because we've seen in some countries where that segment does not vote or that segment votes for the political extremes. And that is one that I want to fight very hard against because we need the next mandate to find the constructive pro-European majority in the center. Otherwise, we will not be able to agree on anything.
0: Do you feel like, though, more needs to be done about those countries in the Western Balkans, which are not yet EU members? I think we are at or about to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the last new country to join, which was Croatia. And you can already hear a certain amount of grumbling from the Western Balkans about the EU prioritizing Ukraine and Moldova and that part of the world obviously a very volatile and difficult part of the world, starting to feel like everybody's ignoring them again, which rarely goes well.
1: And it can only become more volatile if it continues along this path. I have been present at Western Balkan summits where you are right. Leaders of those countries say, are you going to put us back on the back burner? Now, with each country, I would give you a different response, but there is a common sense of frustration and a fear that they will lose their younger generations, either to larger European countries, where they will simply go to work and never come back, but a full disillusion in the political class, no matter which political party is in power at the time. So I think the message should be very clear that moving with Moldova and Ukraine should not in any way take away from movement on the Western Balkans. And that means with each country negotiations have to proceed Sometimes they stall, sometimes there are difficulties, there are challenges in each and every country, but there is no way that we should give them in any way the signal, whether directly or indirectly, that we are going to, let's say, move faster or slower than they would like us to move.
0: That was the President of the European Parliament, Roberta Metzola, speaking to us at the Globesec Bratislava Forum. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Finally, on today's show, we hear from Elmedin Koniakovic, Minister of Foreign Affairs of Bosnia-Herzegovina. EU candidate status was finally accorded to Bosnia-Herzegovina in December. Its path to EU membership is likely to be long and difficult, not least because one chunk of the country, the largely Serb entity Republika Srpska, sounds unsure whether it even wants to be part of Bosnia, never mind the EU. I began by asking about Bosnia-Herzegovina's EU candidate status and how far away from accession the minister thinks his country is. We have this new momentum
2: from December, especially after we earned candidate status country. It is given to Bosnia not because of our politicians, that actually we didn't deserve it. And it's given because of Ukraine and because of aggression on Ukraine, because European community realised that they can have a bigger problem, actually, in the field of Western Balkans because of Russian and other influences that are already happening in that field, you know. So, from now on, we have new momentum, new chance. We are trying to use it. It's not easy. We have uh, politicians that are not so interested in this European path. They are not against it, but they are not put a lot of energy there but still we have good numbers it's more than 77% of Bosnian and Herzegovinians they are in favor of European community of full membership it's interesting even in Republika Srpska the entity is more than 50% so that means we still want to go to European community unfortunately this is really too long. It's already 20 years from Thessaloniki Forum, when actually they sent a message that they need countries from the Western Balkans, from Balkans. And for now, the only Croatia is full member of European community. Other countries, they are staying in the same place. So I hope the new geopolitical scene created because, unfortunately, aggression on Ukraine is opportunity for our country. We started already to deliver something from these 14 key priorities. I hope we will continue and also i hope european community will fully understand how important it is to have these countries inside of european community because it's going to be too dangerous for them also to stay outside
0: i do want to come back to that point about the dangers of not moving fast enough where the western balkans are concerned but there is that unique burden I guess you could call it, that Bosnia carries as it proceeds down this path, which is Republika Srpska. And whatever the people of Republika Srpska might say, and I don't doubt that opinion poll, you have a government in Republika Srpska which has been continually unenthusiastic, even obstructive about this, to the point where, as I'm sure you know, the EU office in Bosnia in March said um, negative developments, as they put it in Republika Srpska, call into question the RS authorities' commitment to advancing Bosnia and Herzegovina on its EU accession path. How difficult is this going to be, really, bringing Republika Srpska along? We cannot. Uh, deliver anything
2: without representatives from Republika Srpska. In the presidency level, they need to vote anonymously for all decisions we need to make about this European path. Council of Ministers also. The statements from Republika Srpska representatives, they are strange. Sometimes, I don't know, like you said, they're not good. But on the other side, they voted already for all documents we proposed inside of this Council of Ministers including amendments on one of the laws which is from these 14 key priorities. They supported also a program of reforms adopted on time this year, actually in February already, I think. And some other documents, Europol contact points and other, we actually need to deliver on our European path. So, awareness of the importance of European community path, I think it's still there. I think they are also pessimistic because of this is really too long, 20 years mm-hmm. is too long. And on the other side, the people there in Bosnia, they cannot touch anything concrete from these reforms we are delivering at the moment. I have, of course, direct contact and communicating with Dodik. He asks like concrete support so he can show to his voters that it's still worthful to do some reforms, deal with the reforms, and it is worthful for but present time, not only for the future. I hope they will realize this is really still the only way for Bosnia-Herzegovina. All other solutions now they they look impossible. We cannot talk about any cooperation with Russia or I don't know. They are too far away. Not economically strong enough.
0: If you look at this from President Milorad Dodic's point of view, is EU accession actually in his own interests? Because if, if Bosnia entire is incorporated into the EU, isn't it the case that either he's out of a job or the job he has becomes a lot less lucrative? I think it is in his
2: interest also because of the possibilities, actually, they are created already in European community. You have another problem. Uh, he is now under the sanction. And we are all sanctioned because of Dodik, you know, because we cannot use any IPA funds. Bosnia-Herzegovina is sanctioned because of Miller behavior. So that all makes the scene really complicated. And we are trying to explain how important is understanding from European community side, you know. So I think when we unblock, if he stops to deliver those horrible public statements he's doing every day, and then I think there is a field for improvement from all sides, then we can go much faster.
0: Is your concern that the longer the Western Balkans is left outside, the greater the danger of Russian influence extending is? Exactly. Not only Dodik.
2: You had a statement from the member of presidency of SDA, the strongest party on Bosnia's side, the young guy who sent a message, actually, why don't we start to negotiate with Russia at this moment, when Russia actually is, they made aggression on Ukraine. So that is really dangerous. That's, I think, the fact that they need to realize it is happening in Bosnia, not only Dodik. He will, of course, and I think he will celebrate if we stay too long outside of the negotiations, you know. And I think that is a space for him and the people like him to promote the idea about connecting other countries, including Russia, of course. That's a fact, actually, European community should be aware. That is the reason why we love these new words like fast track, you know, enlargement, let's go faster, let's negotiate. I hope the momentum is important for all of us, not only for us. For all of us, that means also European community.
0: But do you get any sense that that fast track is any more than just talk? Are you feeling like when you go out in the world trying to make Bosnia's case that there is now more of a sense of urgency than there was 16 months ago? Because, of course, as you, know, you of all people know, I think we are at or past 10 years since the last new country joined the European Union, which was your neighbours in Croatia. Do you get a sense that that urgency is more than rhetorical? Of course, I have to be honest. Still no, but I think that the way we are negotiating,
2: we are explaining, we are understanding each other, it looks different than before. Of course, we don't expect, I don't know, like someone to adapt us and say, okay, tomorrow you are a member of European community without doing anything. That's impossible. We know European community has his own rules. Of course, we know the complicity with this veto administrative problems we can bring with us together. They are not happy to see we are fighting each other on Western Balkans. With us we can bring all problems we have already inside of European communities. We know, we are aware of the situation. And I think they are still not serious enough, but they are getting serious more than were before. So it looks promising, but we cannot touch. We still don't have any concrete results. I hope we are new and the momentum is new. It is happening in the last five months only. It's not like five years, you know. So I think till the end of this year, situation can be much, much better for all countries. Western Europe.
0: That was Elmedin Konjakovic, Minister of Foreign Affairs for Bosnia-Herzegovina, speaking to us at Globesec. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Sell, Christy O'Grady and David Stevens. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. Thanks also to Roger Hilton, Olivia Strapakova and all the team at Globesec. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email Emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle Magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.